Welcome in to the At The Yard Podcast. Today's guest is Joey Santani from the University of Pacific. We'll talk about his rise through the coaching ranks, the importance of data in the development of players, and all things Tigers baseball. All that and much more on episode 48 of the At The Yard Podcast. Welcome back to the At The Art Podcast. Really excited about today's guest, University of Pacific Assistant Coach Joey Santani joins me. Joey, thanks for hopping on the podcast with me. Les, good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, it's a little bit of a crazy time for all of us right now. How are you holding up and you know what are you doing to keep yourself busy? Yeah, it's, it's obviously been a, a little different for everybody. Uh, I'm in a situation where I've I'm at home alone all day. My wife is still working. She's she's essential. Uh, so I've been getting a lot of alone time. I've I've been reading a lot of books. Uh, actually, designing a, a designing a class, a leadership curriculum. Uh, but doing a lot of reading, trying to minimize my television. Uh, but I've been I haven't been getting too bored yet. And and luckily they opened up a couple golf courses out here in Stockton. So I went out a couple times last week. Nice. Keep keep the game sharp while you can, right? I mean, you're not under normal circumstances. You're probably not doing that at all in the spring, I would imagine. No, I haven't golfed in the spring in several years, but it's (laughs) uh, it's been a nice little change to be able to uh, to get out and do something, because for the first seven or eight weeks of this, it was it was pretty much just inside all day, every day. Yeah, no, I know the feeling. Um, so, uh, Joe, you're like me, a native San Diegan, uh, America's finest city. Played your high school ball at what was uni, now is Cathedral Catholic under, you know, a, a gosh, I mean, a, for lack of better terms, a legendary coach, right? And Gary Remaker. Um, take us through that experience and, and how, how you feel that prepared you for the next phase, which we'll dive into, which means, you know, pretty successful career at Pacific. Yeah, I had a great high school experience. Uh, coach Remaker, Coach Ryder, um, you know, Coach Ryder was my pitching coach there. And we had a good baseball team. My sophomore year, I, I made the varsity team. Uh, my brother was a senior that year, so we didn't really get to play together a lot growing up. So it was an awesome experience to be able to to share a CIF championship that year uh, with a family member. Uh, senior year, we, we won another CIF championship. We just we had good teams, you know, I, I wasn't probably the best player on, on any of those teams, but luckily for me, uh, I had some really good teammates that, that colleges were looking at and it gave me opportunities for colleges to come see me play, even though they, they didn't necessarily come to see me to start with. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what you, what we talk about, right. When we talk about, you know, the effort and stuff, right? Because just because they're not coming to see you doesn't mean that they're, you're not being seen, right? And I mean, that you're proof positive of that because like you said, they weren't necessarily coming to see you, but you ended up getting an opportunity to play college baseball. You went to University of Pacific and played under Ed Sprague, a former big leaguer. And I mean, you had a lot of success there as a two-way guy, an outfielder, uh, first baseman, along with pitcher, uh, two-time all big West. And you know, what was the experience like going from Coach Remaker to going to play under a former big leaguer? Um, obviously, Stockton to San Diego are, are night and day difference. Uh, but 
just talk a little bit about the experience of playing for uh, uh, Ed Sprague there at the University of Pacific. Yeah, I, Ed Sprague is, he's a professional. I mean, he just has an aura of confidence around him at all times. And, you know, for, for any high school kids or junior college kids that might be listening right now, just when you're picking a school, uh, it's important to, to understand what that coaching atmosphere is like as well. And, you know, going throughout the high school process, like I mentioned, I wasn't, wasn't highly recruited throughout high school. Uh, I had a, a kid on my team named, you know, he's still one of my best friends, Ryan Wiegand, who, who ended up playing at Gonzaga and, and breaking a bunch of records up there. And some teams ended up seeing me because I was playing on the same team as Ryan was and, you know, got some opportunities to talk to some schools and some coaches and, and had some, some good opportunities uh, from a baseball standpoint and had some good opportunities from an academic standpoint. But I truly believe, you know, the, the way that I, I just went up to Stockton, I had dinner with Ed Sprague and I just wanted to be a tiger. You know, I loved the campus. I loved the city and the coaching staff was great. Obviously, when you meet with a guy that uh, is just a winner, he, you know, he, he won a, a gold medal. He won College World Series at Stanford. He won two World Series with the Blue Jays. Uh, I mean, he just spent his, his career winning, and I wanted to be a part of it. Uh, so I went, I went up there and for my visit and had some dinner and just grew a really strong bond uh, with the coaching staff and with the players who I stayed with. And it was it was that family atmosphere that I was looking for. That was it was honestly a lot like uh, uni, the the high school that I came from, smaller Catholic school. You know, you build a lot of really strong relationships there. And and I thought academically it was going to be a good fit for me. I was I was a good student in high school, but not a great student. And the smaller class sizes at University of the Pacific really brought the best out of me. So it was a great decision. Don't regret it. You know, had some success here, but but also learned a lot uh, going through an injury. You know, I, I tore my labrum at the end of my freshman season, uh, which I, I had a good season. And, you know, you, you're on cloud nine at that point. You you think you got it figured out. Um, and then all of a sudden you go to the doctor's office because you're in some discomfort and he tells you, you you tore your labrum. And that was the first point in my life where I thought, you know, there's a chance that maybe I'm not going to be a major league baseball player someday. I got to figure out my other stuff, you know, and uh, it was it was a really difficult time for me. But again, I was lucky to have some great teammates and great coaches that were just extremely positive, uh, even in a time of, of, you know, serious negativity for me. Was it at the time of that injury, Joey, is that maybe when you started thinking about coaching or did that come much later for you? It honestly came Throughout my entire life, I've been so blessed with so many great mentors and coaches and leaders that have surrounded me. You know, there there wasn't a moment that I said, yeah, I'm going to coach someday. I think it just kind of was a something that had happened throughout my life, and it just kept building and building and building. And then when that injury happened, I started diving a lot more into the mindset of you know, leadership and I started diving into more of what coaches do to get the best out of their players. And, and it became, you know, a, a mind game for me. And I became much more mental with it. And I've taken that into my coaching. And it, I wouldn't say it started at that time of injury, but I definitely gained some different skill sets during that injury. Yeah, that, that's really interesting perspective. So when you were 
at Pacific, you were a two-way guy, right? I mean, you were a pitcher and then, I mean, eventually worked yourself as being the ace of the staff and played in the outfield and first base. And who whose idea was that? Was that your idea? Was that Coach Sprague's or maybe a different coach on the staff that suggested you try that? Or how did that come about? So when I was getting recruited in high school, uh, the pitching coach at Pacific was Jim Brink, who... I still have a really great relationship with. Actually, he was one of the guys that I went golfing with last week. Um, and he brought me in as a two-way guy, and they gave me an opportunity in the fall. But we had seven senior outfielders, oh. and I, I was up against it. I was a little guy. I was weak. You know, if I hammered a ball on the barrel, it was going to sneak over the shortstop's head. And I just didn't have the strength to really compete with those guys at that time. So. They wanted me to really focus on the pitching as a freshman. Uh, you know, I, I had some success and, and ended up winning one of the weekend starting roles and, and had a good season. And then, like I said, I, I had the injury and went through rehab without surgery. And my sophomore year, I actually pitched and hit and was just really uncomfortable on the mound throwing. Ended up uh, doing okay offensively, but had to deal with that injury and went back to the doctor and and he recommended surgery at that time, uh, came back in the middle of my junior year and they wanted me just to focus on pitching again, uh, eased me into things, uh, had a terrible year on the mound. Uh, just, it was not enjoyable. I was, I was not confident. I had lost all, all of my confidence as a pitcher and it was tough. Um, you know, obviously it, you don't feel the same after a surgery, even if you heal, you still feel a little bit different. So um, at that point, you know, I, I stopped feeling sorry for myself and wanting people to feel sorry for me. And I just dove in and I had an amazing summer. Uh, after my junior year, I went to McKinney, Texas and had an awesome host family who I still keep in contact with. And you know, my best friend, Joe Oliveira, who I know you've had on this show before, uh, ended up being my roommate out there. And I had an awesome summer with some great ball players, some future big leaguers were on that team, Mike Bolsinger and, and Jimmy Nelson, and just hanging out with those guys and working out with those guys and having that host family and just kind of getting away uh, really helped me develop uh, a different mindset. And I started to get some confidence back. And I'll never forget the meeting I had with Coach Sprague at the beginning of my senior year. Because, like I said, I'd lost all confidence. And that summer, uh, it built it back up for me. And I made some changes mentally in my life that, that led me to, to getting some sort of confidence back. And I went into the office, and you know, he asked me what I wanted to do. You know, how, how am I going to help this team? And I, I remember vividly, and he probably remembers vividly what I said as well. Uh, I wanted to start every Friday on the mound. And I was going to throw 100 innings. And when I wasn't on the mound, I was going to be in the lineup playing center field every day. And I basically just put it all out on the table and said, hey, I want to lead this team and I want to do everything that I can. And I'm hurt and I know that I'm hurt, but I don't really care. This is probably my last year I'm ever going to play baseball. So I'm going to do whatever I can to, to help this team be as successful as we can. And it led to a great year. You know, the, the win-loss record was just OK, but it was a great experience. I have, you know, lifelong friends on that team. And unfortunately, my goal of 100 innings which Coach Sprague knew about. I got to 99, and we were playing last weekend of the season, Cal State Bakersfield. And the last inning I was out there, I was just getting obliterated. 
and they were hammering balls. I gave up like a four spot and I went in the dugout and Sprague said, Hey, I know you're an inning away, but it's, it's just not there. So <laughs> I totally understood. So uh, that was a goal of mine I didn't achieve, but it ended up being a great season. Oh, that's awesome, man. That, so it's amazing what a little bit of confidence can do, right? But more importantly, where that confidence comes from. I mean, you talked about the host family. Uh, you talked, obviously, about Joe being there and, and then just being surrounded by really good players, right? And that really elevated your confidence. So it's, it's interesting how and where uh, confidence for a player can come from. Yeah, I mean, it needs to come from from yourself, obviously, but the people that you surround yourself with in life makes or breaks you. You know, and that's not just speaking from an academic perspective. I, you know, I've been fortunate. I mentioned a couple of my friends on this on this already, but I've been fortunate enough to have people in my family and my friends that have been such great supporters. You know, there's no chance without them that I'm going to have a, a successful college career or get an opportunity to play professional baseball or, or be where I'm at right now. Uh, I've, I've just been extremely fortunate to have great people surrounding me uh, and, and great leaders. Yeah. It's like the old adage, right? You're only as good as the company you keep. And, and so, so far you, you've been around some really good company. You have an opportunity uh, to play for the Orioles with whom you signed in uh, after the 2009 season you had to retire because of an arm injury. I, I'm presuming it was the same injury. Yeah, I honestly, I was, I was shot after that senior year. You know, I, I, like I said, I, I did all I could, and uh, I was not in the best shape of my life from an arm standpoint. Uh, but the Orioles did give me an opportunity, which I, I obviously really appreciate. I went out there, had a, had a good first short season. Um, went back for my second spring training, and. Two weeks in, I you know I went in the trainer and and that was it. You know they wanted me to rehab again and and I was just I spent the last five years rehabbing and it just the game wasn't as fun as it used to be for me. And you know at that moment, you know I, I talked to them a little bit about maybe coaching at the professional level, um, but at that moment I, I felt I felt a little bit better about taking a step back and and just going back to California and, and settling down a little bit. Yeah, so you come back to California. You work at the Brickyard Cages there. You're running, running camps, clinics, giving lessons, uh, doing doing well for yourself. Uh, and then in 2013, you get your first foray into t into coaching at Francis Parker under again another legendary coach in San Diego, Coach Glassy. What was that like? Yeah, it was awesome. Honestly, it was. <laughs> It was interesting because I went in, uh, you know, having a little bit of a relationship with Coach Glassy already, and he wanted me to, you know, help him out with with the varsity side of things, but really take hold of the the junior varsity program and help out at, you know, some private schools actually have middle school programs. And I'm looking at this middle school program and I'm thinking, geez, they have they have some really talented players. Namely, Nick Allen was the shortstop on that team. And I think Nick Allen at that time in eighth grade probably could have played shortstop for any varsity team in the city of San Diego. Mm -hmm. So I'm working with some crazy good athletes. You know, Jonah Davis was on that team who, who went to Cal and had a great career and, and is playing in the Pirates organization. Uh, and it, it was a great experience, obviously, to learn from those coaches as well. You know, when you're young and you're 23, 24, 25, and 
you need to be a sponge. And regardless of if you're around great coaches or bad coaches, you can learn from everybody. And I learned a lot from Coach Glassy that year. Uh, and it was nice to be able to, to grab the bull by the horns and actually get to, to run my own program and, and really get a feel for what that was like. Yeah, so then the next year you head over to Bishop's, the, the Bishop School there, and, and as the head coach and kind of the same deal, right? I mean, it's got a middle school program. You're running the camps there. You guys made the playoffs, and you host a home playoff game for the first time in gosh knows how long. But that experience, you know, of learning along the way, how did those experiences with Remaker, with Sprague, with Glassy, you know, how did all those experiences kind of culminate for you uh, in that year at, at Bishop's? All the coaches that I have been around, yeah, everybody is a little bit different. You know, obviously Coach Sprague, he was a World Series champion, and <laughs> learning from him is a little bit different than learning from Coach Remaker, who runs obviously a, a great high school program, and, and Coach Glassy had, you know, won several games at Francis Parker, and just picking and choosing, you know, what type of coach am I going to be? And a lot of young coaches go out there and they put their foot on the gas and they they're kind of have that tunnel vision going on. And I needed to make sure that I didn't have my blinders on. I was going to be open to suggestions. You know, I, I hired a couple young coaches that, you know, I, I really trust two of my good friends that, that I knew were going to be loyal to me and, and to the program. And we just kind of fed off of each other's good energy and, yeah, Bishops at the time was a program that, you know, needed, they needed a little guidance. You know, it's, it's an extremely academic school and I know sports aren't always on the, the forefront of their mind. And we, we brought a little bit of more structure to the program. Uh, we worked a little bit more and we had a couple really good players, honestly, that, that led the way from, from their work ethic and a school like that, you, you know, you don't need to have seven or eight all-stars. If you have a couple really good leaders that, that can, throw strikes or, or hit a couple doubles, then, then you have a chance at winning some games. And we were lucky enough to have some good players that, that helped us have some success that year. Yeah, so in 2015, you head back to the alma mater there to coach. Um, uh, and then after that, you go to back home, if you will, to San Diego State, uh, where you guys had a just a, a whole boatload of success working with Sam Peraza in the, on the pitching staff. I mean, you guys had four conference pitchers of the year, nine All-Americans. Um, you know, that's where, uh, you know, I would see you quite frequently during the, the MLK camps. And, you know, then and then in 2018, you make your way back to Pacific as an assistant where you currently are. And so it's kind of all come full circle, right? I mean, some guys have had these crazy paths where they've been here, been there, been there, been there. You know, but when you look at your career path, it's it's really kind of the high school ranks, UOP and SDSU, right? And I mean, that's got to feel comforting for you being obviously a native San Diegan and then being an alum of Pacific to be able to spend time not only in your hometown, but where you went to school. Yeah, I mean, this is my third time back to Stockton at University of the Pacific, you know, twice as a coach and once as a player. So that first year when Sprague, you know, I wasn't planning um, on interviewing for the job. I was at Bishop's High School at the time, and I was actually just on a, a cross-country road trip. And he called me and said, hey, what, why aren't you applying for this job? And I said, okay, I'll apply for it. And he, he hired me a week later. And it was, it was strange because obviously a lot of coaches get into the volunteer role first and, 
And uh, I hopped right into a, a full-time position at, you know, whatever I was, 26 years old, uh, which really fortunate. Um, you know, we didn't yeah. have a great season. And unfortunately, you know, it only, our staff only lasted one year there. And, and then you kind of get punched in the gut and a couple job opportunities come up that next summer. And Mark Martinez calls me and I end up getting an opportunity to be a volunteer there. And he actually brought me on, not not to help with the pitching, but to be more of a, the outfield guy, which I played in college, and help with the offense. And that year was the biggest uh, learning curve for me in, in my entire life as a coach. We were not good that year. And you know, I, I kind of had that salty attitude of going from a full-time role to a volunteer role. And I still obviously worked really hard. And I have so much respect for Mark Martinez. And, and he's obviously done amazing things there. Uh, but we were not very good that year. So that summer, he called me into his office and, you know, talked to me about potentially making coaching changes. And I'm shell shocked at that point. You know, am I am I going to get fired from a volunteer role? Like, you don't even pay me, <laughs> <laughs> which is a it's a head scratcher because I, you know, we had a bad year, but I feel like I really did work hard. And that next year, you know, we we made the decision for me to to help Sam Praz out on the pitching side, which is obviously a little bit more of my background. Uh, and, you know, we went from, I think, 21 wins to 42 wins the next season. And we go to a regional and, you know, I, I was, a, again, as a young coach, you need to be a sponge. And I learned, I didn't talk as much as I probably even should have, but I learned so much from, from Mark Martinez, uh, from Joe, who's, uh, you know, one of my best friends. And, and then from Sam Peraza, I, I helped Sam with the pitching, but I, I don't take any credit for the, the pitcher's success that year. It, it was all Sam. I was just watching and learning as much as I possibly could. And yeah, it led to an opportunity where Ryan Garko got the Pacific job and, you know, he, he asked me to interview for it and ended up bringing me on as the pitching coach is where I've been here for the past two and a half years. You know, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought up that, you know, you're, you had this salty attitude because you talk about that in your book. And, and I want to dive into this because I think this is a really, I, I bought it. I read it. I think I'm on my second time through it. Uh, the book's titled Stop Complaining, right? And, and you talk about that exact scenario you just laid out for us where Coach Martinez calls you into his office and you're thinking, oh my gosh, am I going to be fired from a volunteer role? But what led you to write that book? Um, and, and what were some, what was some of your motivation behind it? I've always, you know, like I said, I've always been around leaders and I was just a crazy competitor growing up, probably annoying to my parents and, and my friends at times, but I had an older brother and an older sister who were just really successful in everything that they did. And I was just trying to keep up with them throughout my life and, I had a great life. I mean, growing up, I, I had great parents and I was always on winning teams and smart family members and friends. And I had it pretty easy, honestly, growing up. And then all of a sudden you get to a point where you have a setback in life uh, and you've never really gone through anything like this before, which was my my arm injury. Uh, and you start learning to be you know, a little bit more cerebral about things. And then at Pacific a couple of years ago, there was just a culmination of our pitching staff just they, for some some reason there was like a week of them just complaining about things to me and we talked about it and i had meetings with the guys 
And I had been researching the topic of complaining for the past about year. And I just told him on one day we were conditioning and, you know, it wasn't that hard compared to the conditioning that people had to do back when, when we played in before, I didn't think it was very difficult, but we had a couple guys that, you know, I thought were leaders, uh, complain about it. And I said, that's it. Like I'm, I have this book idea. I'm going to write a book about complaining and you guys have pushed me over that edge. And they all laughed and, you know, thought I was joking, whatever. And then five weeks later, the book was done. And I just, it was pretty, pretty easy because I already had all my ideas down. Uh, and my brother is actually an English professor. So ha having him help me out made it a little easier on me. But the idea of complaining, and for those that haven't read the book or don't know much about it, if you're able to, to recognize your thoughts and adjust your mindset at the you know flip of a switch, you can be a lot happier. And I think when people aren't able to do that and they dwell on negativity, uh, one, one fact that I put in that book is that you have about 60,000 thoughts a day and 90% of those thoughts are recurring on a day-to-day -day basis. So if you're going down that path of negativity and you have 90% of your thoughts are recurring, you're just going to continue digging that hole deeper and deeper. So I dove into it, wrote the book, you know, didn't, didn't want to become a millionaire or anything from it. Just kind of did it as a passion project and gave it out to some family and friends and, and obviously sent it to some other people. And it's been cool. It, it was a fun project to do. Yeah. I mean, listen, it, for me personally, and I have not shared this with you, but it really spoke to me because you talk about those negative thoughts and kind of how it just digs it deeper and deeper. And we all go through phases in our lives where, the negativity or the negative thoughts in your head just are seem inescapable. So, I mean, for me personally, that book really spoke to me. And it's, there's a reason why I'm reading it for a second time, because, you know, you go through it, you kind of mark it up and you go through it again and you mark it up some more. And you, I think things really start to become ingrained in your in your memory uh, that way. At least that's the way I tend to learn. But you know, that book really spoke to me, Joey. It was it was impressive. It's a quick read. It's not, you know, a 400-page novel, uh, but it's a quick read. It's an easy read. But gosh, there's so much to be gained from that book. So kudos to you for writing it, and, and thank you, because, uh, you know, it certainly spoke to me, uh, you know, and, and my mindset as well. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even just write it just for, for coaches or athletes even. You know, my, my mom actually called me two days ago and said her, her Bible study group didn't do anything having to do with the Bible. They talked about my book the whole time because a couple of the ladies had apparently just read it the previous week. So it, you know, I feel like it really relates to various aspects and, and, and every type, every walk of life, not just, you know, on and off the baseball field. Yeah. 100%. But let's talk about some of the baseball field, uh, you know, university of Pacific, uh, you know, you guys have had some a, a number of players there, Coach Garko, when he brought you back. You guys, the recruiting seemed to take an uptick there. Um, you know, what's kind of the philosophy currently? You know, obviously Coach Garko's not there any longer, but you still remain. What is the, kind of the philosophy there with when it comes to recruiting? What sorts of um, what sort of characteristics are you guys looking for in potential recruits? So I, I just watched the movie Miracle a few days ago, which fires me up every time I see it about the, the U.S. hockey team. And, you know, Herb Brooks, the coach in the movie, talks about 
the guys that he wanted on that team aren't, aren't necessarily always the best players, but they're the right players. And I know what University of the Pacific is. It's a great academic institution. We've had a long, historic baseball career without a lot of success. I know that. Are we going to go after the best players, especially in the state of California? Yes, of course we are. Uh, but we also understand that if we're going up against, you know, Stanford, I don't. If Stanford's going up against anybody in the country, then I'm not going to blame a kid for picking Stanford over University of the Pacific. So uh, we try to find the right fit for us. And a lot of the time, it comes down to me and you know Chris Rodriguez and and whoever else is recruiting for us to go out and and find kids that work. I want to find kids that are going to be loyal to the program, that are extremely competitive, and that are not afraid to work. And those are three things that are really hard to see when you're recruiting. Obviously, I can have a stopwatch and a radar gun, and all the coaches see the best players. But to go after those other guys that are maybe on, on the second sheet and say, man, this kid really works. I see that fire in him. Uh, every coach that I've talked to that, that has coached him has amazing things to say about him and his family. And, you know, I, I could shoot out some examples. And, and one of those is Ricky Reynoso, who, who graduated here uh, last year. He's also a San Diego kid from Benita Vista High School. And, you know, in high school, it was a kid that was 82, 83. And, I mean, I saw him throw and I just saw his competitiveness nature on the mound and and talked to him on the phone. And he spoke with such confidence and and he was overlooked by a lot of schools had a couple small d1 offers and you know ended up having an amazing career at pacific and and guys like that are a lot harder to recruit because you don't point the radar gun and it says 91 you gotta you gotta go with your gut on some of these guys and and it is difficult but you know i have confidence in my ability to see that in players and and the problem is if you miss on them and you come in throwing 82 miles an hour and he doesn't work hard then probably going to lose a lot of baseball games. <laughs> yeah, so when you talk about having the conversations with family members, with coaches and uh, things, let's stick to the coaches part, right? Because, you know, you guys, obviously you're out during the spring, you're out during the summer, you're talking to high school coaches, you're talking to club coaches, you know, inevitably there's going to be a conflict in, in the information you're getting what do you do at that point, right? Because say a high school coach is telling you, you know, this guy's an A plus and, and the and the club coach is telling you, well, he doesn't work hard, Joe. You, he's not going to work for you. Uh, you know, obviously you have a relationship with both those coaches. How do you filter through that information and try to make, you know, the right call on a kid? Yeah, all coaches, you know, I have relationships with hundreds of coaches, obviously at the high school and club levels and you have relationships with people that you really trust. And, you know, an example is I was on a kid last year, and I'm not going to name the coach or the organization, uh, but I called his club coach and asked about this particular kid. And the coach, who I really trust his opinion, told me straight up, the kid has some ability, but but he does not have the work ethic. He's, he's going to stay pretty stagnant throughout his four years unless he figures something out. And... I trust his opinion. That is a coach that I really trust. That's a kid I'm literally just going to cross off my list. Um, because if you have a kid that even if one coach is saying no because of a work ethic, even if I don't know that coach, like, I don't want, I just don't want that kid, you know, mm -hmm. especially at University of Pacific when we're trying to build a program based on blue collar, 
hardworking kids. Uh, so if a coach, if I get one no from a coach, it's probably going to be a no for me. Um, but yeah, there are some coaches obviously that I call that I don't really have relationships with. Uh, I do really like calling high school coaches because they're with those kids during the school year and they're with them every day and they get to know them a little bit more on a personal level. So even if I don't know anything about that specific coach's, you know, ability to see a kid's talent, they're going to know the kid on a personal level, which is important to me. I don't want to bring in kids that are going to cause problems in the locker room or in the classroom. So it is tough at times to be able to balance, well, this coach said one thing and this coach said another thing, and I, I trust both of them. Uh, and that's just kind of the job where you got to be able to go with your gut in, in some instances. You know, you talked about missing on a kid, you know, and, and you're going to lose ball games. But the flip side to that is the over-recruiting, right? I mean, some schools are, are just bringing in a collection of names and, and you know, they'll figure it out later. Uh, I'm interested in knowing – like getting getting your perspective on that because, you know, I, I've asked this question of several guys that have been on the podcast, and it's the current state of recruiting with not only the over recruiting, but with you know eighth graders making commitments to Division One schools now. And do you think that is a sustainable model for college baseball? No, I do not. And I, yeah. This is not how we recruit, but I also can't put myself in a position of, you know, an SEC or, or a Pac-12 head coach whose wins and losses are going to dictate whether or not they have a job. So mm -hmm. I don't know what that's like. I do know that the reason somebody should get into coaching or teaching, because I, I believe that coaching is, is teaching. You know, you're teaching these kids not only baseball skills, but, but life skills. And that's why I got into it. I knew that I wanted to teach or coach one day, and I do it for the student athletes. I don't do it for, for my benefit. Obviously, I'd like to climb my way up the ladder and, and be a Division I head coach someday. Uh, but at the same time, the reason I do this and the reason that I have a job is because of the student athletes. And I want to make sure that they get the best possible experience. So if I bring a kid in and I offer scholarships and then his senior year of high school, I say, hey, sorry, that, that money I offered you is gone. We don't have it anymore. Um, you know, that, that's not why we do this. That's, you know, that's putting the kid and the family in a bad situation. And, you know, sometimes a kid will end up coming on campus. You, you guarantee him a roster spot and, you know, he doesn't make the team and he thought he was going to make the team. And we don't have those conversations. It's very cut and dry, uh, at Pacific. We, you know, if we offer you a scholarship, that's the scholarship, like it's going to be there. And are we going to put some time frames on kids? Yeah, that's where I think the game should be. I think a lot of programs put, put that time limit on kids, and, and some programs think it's unfair. Uh, I don't think it's unfair. If, if I go into, you know, the example that I use, if I go into Google for a job offer and they offer me a job and then three months later I haven't given them a response and they haven't filled that position yet, that's not fair to the company. And in a way, we're kind of working in that you know, organizational sense. We need to fill this roster spot. We've offered a kid a scholarship. We can't let him sit on it for months and months and months because then other shortstops are going to be committing to other universities while we're waiting. Uh, so it's it's a double-edged sword, but at the same time, we do this for the kids. You ha If that's not why you're in this, then I think you're in the wrong business. 
Right. You know, and, and oftentimes you'll hear, well, if we're not doing it, you know, somebody else in our league is doing it. And I, and I, again, I, I completely understand that. And it's, I just, I'm, my whole, I guess, position on it is, you know, what can be done to avoid that? Obviously, the the obvious answer is let kids sign an NLI, right? Uh, but that clearly is not going to happen. They're not going to allow a, a freshman to sign an NLI, in my opinion. Uh, what other things do you think could be done to potentially, you know, maybe not curb it out, but at least slow it down, right? I mean, because, uh, you know, it's obviously a little bit different in the SEC, somewhere part of the country where we're not in. But, uh, you know, we're seeing it now on the West Coast, and it's 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 not only, uh, you know, limited to one particular conference, uh, the one Power Five conference out here. But uh, I'm just curious. I mean, it's it's just a conversation I think is, is fascinating one, uh, you know, and hearing from somebody in your position who's, who's in the college game, I'm, I'm curious what you think could potentially done to be done to, you know, slow it down. I, I mean, let's just try to slow this process down, right? I mean, because I don't know about you, but when I was in eighth and ninth grade, I mean, I had no idea of what I wanted in a college, right? Much less uh, the commitment to one. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on what could possibly be done to just slow that process down. So the NCAA, obviously, the past couple of years has come up with some some new regulations for you know contacting certain kids and at certain times, and I think that's that helps it a little bit, but there's no way of stopping that, you know, and. Mm-hmm. Again, we're not at a university where, you know, University of Pacific is not going to get 10 guys drafted in a year. And I've seen what it's like, you know, at San Diego State, I've seen what it's like to be able to have a potential big draft class with a couple high schoolers and maybe five or six of your current college guys that are juniors and working over that 11.7 because you're assuming, well, this kid, you know, we're talking to a lot of agents and, and scouts and this kid's projected to go in, you know, the top 10 rounds, he's definitely going to sign it if he goes there. Well, if something happens and, and it falls through the cracks and this kid ends up not signing and you've given his scholarship money away, what do you do? And yeah. I don't know if there's a, a right or wrong answer. I, I think that signing an NLI uh, at a young age should be acceptable when you get into high school, but I don't think there's a defense to it other than that as of right now. Yeah. Yeah, I, tell, I, I agree with you. I just, and, and again, it's not, you know, I'm not going after programs and schools that decide to do that, take that approach. I just, I think it's just a conversation worth having because there's so many kids and parents that have those questions, right? And so I just think the more we can talk about it, uh, you know, the more information that's out there for them. But let's shift back to the, to the Tigers of UOP. And, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to come up and watch a practice uh, I want to say was not uh, this past season, obviously, but last year. Uh, and I was really, really intrigued by just the way the practice was run. You know, Coach Garko was still there um, and Coach Roofcamp was there. I actually called you, but you were off campus that day, I remember. Um, but, you know, talk about kind of what you guys emphasize in your program uh, in terms of, you know, uh, practices and, and, and development and, and, you know, are you guys into the data kind of revolution, if you will? And if so, how do you guys implement that? Yeah, I mean, you have to be, you're behind the game if you're not doing any sort of technological stuff with your baseball team. You, you have to get there. And 
we do, you know, we have blast motion sensors, we have a Rapsodo machine, uh, we have plenty of cameras, and, and we utilize them. And it's important. So it, you have to find that fine line, uh, you know, of what's too much information for a kid. I don't want a kid to be competing on the mound, not thinking about anything except his, you know, spin direction. That That's probably not going to lead to success. So, you know, finding that, that fine line of in that bullpen atmosphere, okay, you know, we have a kid that he's got that spin direction at, at 11 o'clock on his slider and, and we want to get it closer to, to 9 o'clock and have a little bit more of that vertical break. You know, what I do with the pitchers is I actually give them a pitch development 101 type course um, to teach them the basics of what we're going to talk about in our bullpens and in our film sessions. So that's something that I do. Again, we're in this business to teach the guys. And I think if we're just putting a Rapsodo machine up and saying, hey, your spin direction is this and we need it to be this, that's not helping anybody. So we need to be able to give them the tools so that they can learn. And that's really important for us. And that, that development aspect, it, it, again, it's easy for me to go out and see a kid throw 94 and probably going to have some success. But to find a kid and really develop them and, and on the physical side as well as the mental side is important. So we balance the technology. Uh, you know, and honestly, it's, it's been a little different since Coach Garko left. You know, his, he was a little bit more pro style, um, you know, from a practice standpoint. And now, you know, Coach Rodriguez and, and myself and, and Coach DeGallier and Coach Malcolm, the current staff, we've practices have been a lot different, uh, which has been good. You know, I think Coach Garko obviously has a great history and, and is a great coach and things are just different. Not to say they're they're any better or worse now, but I think things are just a little bit different and it's good. I love working with the coaching staff we have. You know, they I get to handle the pitchers on my own and. We have a million things that we do out there in the bullpen during practice and have plenty of stations, but we want to make sure that there's just constant efficiency. I don't want to see pitchers. I don't love the idea of pitchers just shagging during BP and we don't do that. You know, there's, there's times where they need to be in a shag group or a bucket group, but they have stations just like the hitters. So usually they'll have one or two stations in the bullpen with me where we're doing you know, dry work off the mound or, or core velocity work, or we'll go to the locker room and just turn all the lights off and do visualization for 10 minutes. Uh, again, it, it's important to stay as efficient as you can and, and as organized as you can. So do you use the data as a teaching tool or do you teach to the data? Both, both. So uh, here's an example. We had a kid, a senior this year, who we actually converted. He was an outfielder. Um, we knew he had a good arm, obviously. It was a 70 arm from the outfield. We knew he was going to pitch at some point in his life. So this fall, we actually converted him to a pitcher. And he got on the mound in the fall. And it was 85 to 87. And, you know, me, I'm sitting there thinking, and the command wasn't good. So I'm like, well, man, this is, this isn't what I was expecting. He's in the outfield. It looks like he should be throwing, you know, 93, 94. And so we use this data and we use the cameras and film, obviously to break down the mechanics and to break down any sort of pitch trajectory, pitch design type information that we can get. And then we take that information from his bullpen sessions and he would come down and sit in my office. And he actually sat in my office. This particular athlete was devoted to getting to the next level, which was great. 
he was in my office about every week going over film and going over Rapsodo numbers. And come comes, you know, February, season's around the corner, and I'm like thinking this this kid is a legitimate back end bullpen arm for us now, where he went from that eighty five to eighty seven all over the map to actually having decent command, fastball up to ninety four now, and vertical break, which you're looking between 12 and 16 inches for the average pitcher. This kid's vertical break is 20 inches, which is well above major league average. So he started to learn how to pitch up in the zone more effectively, just throwing, you know, 92, 93 mile hour fastballs at the belly button. And he starts punching people out. And again, that's, it's not because I'm a good pitching coach. It's literally just, this is the information from the rap Soto. We tweaked a couple of your mechanical things and he committed to making those changes. And then he went out and he did it and he had success because of it. And he started getting a feel for it. Unfortunately, you know, if this was 12 months ago, you know, we're finishing the season and he's probably getting popped in the 15th to 20th round and going to play pro ball. Now things might be a little different for him, but he was one kid that really made that adjustment, dove into it and uh, it became better because of it. Yeah, Joe, I've always maintained you're you're a very cerebral guy, very intellectual type person. And and so what was the process of kind of learning all the data elements for you? Uh, you know, I mean, was it a simple process? Was it something that you had seen along the line, along the way, right? Like coming up in coaching or even back when you were playing uh, on some form or fashion of it. Uh, what was that process of learning what this data means and how can I teach to it or how can I teach off of it? Uh, what was that like for you? So teaching, you have to have information and information is power and I hate the idea and we actually have a kid coming in next year from Delta College who is, he was valedictorian of his high school, like just crazy smart kid and he came on his visit and he sat down in, in you know the couch right across from me and he's asking me questions that luckily I was prepared. I can't imagine having a recruit come into my office and me not knowing what he's talking about. And that is my motivation for it. Whether I believe in everything you know that Rapsodo talks about or that driveline talks about or this pitching coach, that pitching coach, I need to generate my own coaching style and, and believe what I believe, but I need to have as much information as I can because if a kid comes into me and says, hey, you know, I was told to do X, Y, Z, I'll have information. I'll say, yeah, no, I agree. I think that'd be a good idea for you. Or I could say, you know, I know a lot about that and I don't think that's the best route for you to take. Uh, so I want to just have information, whether I believe it's right or wrong. From the technology standpoint, we were actually the beta system of sports vision. So the creator of sports vision went to university of the Pacific. So when they built the stadium, uh, my freshman year of college, we had the beta system of this analytics camera system. And that's when things started to kind of pick up in major league baseball. They started putting the K zone on TV and all that fun stuff. So I kind of had a little bit of information even as a college player. So I obviously knew at some point this is going to explode and baseball is going to be a, you know, 90% data-driven game. And I just wanted to get, again, as much information as I could. And, and that's what I've tried to do as a coach so that I have answers for kids. Uh, again, whether they're right or wrong, you know, they're, they're my beliefs. Yeah. And um, let's go back to that converted outfielder to the pitcher guy. I mean, that's some pretty, 
pretty pretty quality leadership characteristics that that young man exemplified, right? I mean, you talked about him coming into your office and being committed to, you know, playing on the next level. So how is it that you guys, you know, develop leadership and, you know, or cultivate leadership uh, within the program? Or you personally, as a coach, what sorts of things do you, strategies do you implement to develop leadership within the pitching staff per se, uh, or even as, you know, a larger unit, the entire team? So I'm reading a book right now, uh, more of a military leadership type book that they mention in that book that leadership requires belief in a mission. And I, I believe that. I believe that my pitching staff in particular, I can't speak as much from the position player standpoint, but from the pitching perspective, if I don't believe in them, then they're probably not going to believe in themselves. And I have to be able to instill this in them. So ways we do that, obviously, you know, if you have 16 pitchers on a staff and, you know, for us, you're getting 10 to 12 guys that are, you know, getting on the mound and there's some guys that aren't going to pitch. I still care about those guys. I can't bring the three best pitchers into my office and talk to them every day and never talk to the guys that are in the back end. And some coaches probably run their staff like that. I, again, want to continue to develop these kids because maybe someday they work their way into the top 10 pitchers and are going to help us out. Or at the very least, I'm going to try to do the best that I can to help them get the best experience that they can at University of the Pacific. And building relationships is important. We do, uh, like I mentioned, in our in our bullpen groups with the pitchers, sometimes as part of the group, we'll have a, a mobility session out in left field, or I'll go through like a really quick stretching yoga type session with them. And we just talk. We don't talk about baseball they talk to me about their lives and they talk to me about school or they talk to me about their girlfriends or about their families or, or anything. And really building that a little bit more personal relationship. Uh, it, it, I trust them. They trust me. And, you know, since I am a leadership figure in their eyes already, you know, I kind of have that role model sense to where, you know, they're going to feed off of my energy and, and there are some things that I would like to incorporate more of, um, you know, in the future, something, an example, yeah, luckily, the, not luckily, but during COVID, I actually designed a, a leadership curriculum that I would like to teach to our guys. And it's not a class. They don't have, you know, any sort of assignments or anything, but just teach them about leadership. And I think it's a skill that kind of gets overlooked in the schooling system. Uh, especially at the high school level, but in college, they're at that point where they're starting to learn, you know, if they're leaders or if they're not leaders, maybe some skills that they can attain to become leaders. And so it's just something I'd like to incorporate along with some stuff that we already do. So we talked about, you know, obviously missing the spring season and, <clears throat> excuse me, and I mean, you've been on a baseball field your entire life, uh, you know, aside from, you know, the obvious, right? The loss of the season, the, you know, the, the, the not being around the players. What's been, what's been the most challenging thing to deal with as a result of the cancellation of the spring season? You're getting better or you're getting worse, you know, and trying to motivate the guys over the phone and over Zoom is, is frustrating uh, because I don't get to see the, I don't get to see the work they're putting in. And I'm, again, I, we have a pretty good relationship and I trust them that, that they're putting in work. Uh, but for me on a personal level, 
it's been tough those days where, where you get up and, and you just remember that it's, it's Groundhog Day and, you know, and my wife's going to work and I have, all right, I got 10 hours. I'm going to, what I'm doing right now while I'm talking to Les is I'm sitting in my recliner, which I do for about seven hours a day. How am I going to become a better person in this time that I have alone? And, you know, a phrase that I live by is, is you do one thing like you do everything. And that's how I try to live my daily life. And I try to get the most out of everything that I'm doing, mostly to benefit our, our, our student athletes. And the biggest problem for me is I've been doing a lot of things right now that I haven't been able to really do a lot to benefit them. You know, I haven't seen them in, in a couple months and I'm talking to them every single week. But it, it's a struggle to be able to wake up and know that, you know, what you love to do has been taken away from you for a little bit. Do you think this will have a an, an impact on the college game, you know, whether it's short-term or long-term? I mean, obviously the rostering, uh, you know, for some places is going to be uh, an adjustment. Uh, but what, what, if any other impacts, do you think this will have on the college game? There's definitely going to be budgetary restrictions at universities. You're going to see a million schedule changes which is a good idea. You know, if we have a, we have a trip to wherever we're going to play grand Canyon and instead of a flight to grand Canyon, maybe we should just take a, a 45 minute drive up North and play a weekend series against Sac state. Uh, that's going to help both programs from a financial standpoint. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of that, you know, and some schools are going to hurt more than others. We honestly weren't too affected. Uh, University of Pacific, we weren't too affected from a roster standpoint uh, where we had some seniors that were going to graduate and they were going to leave. Uh, and that was the end of it. Um, so we weren't too affected. I know some schools are going to have to have tough conversations with kids and, and maybe some kids that were going to walk onto the program as freshmen aren't going to have that roster spot anymore because a kid's going to come back and fill that spot. And those are conversations that are tough that I'm, I'm lucky that I didn't have to have any of them at, at our place, but, uh, th- those are just a couple things, but there's going to be some, you know, Maybe they whack down some games and we only play 48 instead of 56. There'll be, we'll see some rules over the next few months that hopefully, you know, people are following these social distancing rules. Cause I'm, I am from Southern California and I see us open some things up and then all of a sudden there's 2 million people on the beach and you're like, people, can you just <laughs> hang out six feet apart for, for a little bit? <laughs> no doubt, man. Uh, and, you know, lastly, you know, what, do you think this will result in any changes to the to the college game? We talked about the impact, right? And you know, we talked about the impact on the rostering and the changes there with the um, with the with the um, you know financial uh, impacts. But do you think it'll result in any changes? You touched on potentially one, you know, whacking of some games. But any any other changes, long term changes uh, that that this might, or even short term changes in addition to the the, you know, trimming of the schedule potentially that you could foresee? I'm hoping not. You know, you hear a million things through the grapevine of, and again, I can speak for University of the Pacific more so than than every school as a whole, but everybody's in a different position. You know, some big-time schools with football programs, if if the college football season gets affected by this, that's really going to hurt some schools, and you're going to see, you know, different positions throughout the university athletics department just get they're not going to get renewed and people aren't going to get rehired 
And that's that's the effect that bothers me the most is, you know, I think the student athletes and the sports are going to continue for the most part. But there's going to be a lot of people at these universities losing their jobs uh, and not just in athletics. That's going to be, you know, the, the secretary across campus that that works in the president's office. So, you know, maybe they don't rehire her and those sort of things. It, it's, it's a struggle for me to, to accept that. But I know that it's going to happen at some schools. Yeah, no, no doubt. Jerry, that was uh, awesome. Uh, awesome insight on, on all things Pacific baseball in your career. And I really appreciate that. But before I let you go, we do the uh, coaches rapid fire where I'm just going to shoot off some questions at you, you know, come back at me with the first thing that pops in your mind. So you ready to roll? Yes, sir. All right, here we go. Small ball or gorilla ball? Gorilla ball, 1998, Sammy Sosa, favorite season. <laughs> uh, country, rock, or hip-hop? Country. Costco or Sam's Club? Costco. College football or the NFL? NFL. Track man or Rapsodo? Rapsodo. Favorite vacation spot? <sighs> boy, oh boy. I mean... I'm Italian. I've been to Italy a couple times. It's got to be Italy. And I'll say Florence, Italy in particular. Okay. Uh, Mac or PC? Mac. Best singer on your team? Best singer on the Pacific Tigers. Well, I'm going to give a shout out to our best hip hop singer. And he's going to love this. His name is Wyatt Hoffman. Best dancer on the team? Uh, I can tell you the worst dancer on the team. <laughs> I'll take that. Oh, man. Worst dancer on the team. I'm sorry, Joe Solomon, but you have to be in that mix. Best dancer on the team. <laughs> I would imagine Elijah Birdsong is going to be in that mix. Uh, favorite stadium you've ever been in? Wrigley Field. Go-to song to sing in the shower? It's going to be some sort of Frankie Valley song for sure. Favorite sports team? Chicago Cubs. And lastly, because you're a San Diegan, Lolitas or Robertos? Robertos. Uh, I mean, sorry, dude, but there's a couple that I'm putting over both of those. What do you got, dude? I'm a JVs guy. Are you right, really? Right down the hill from USD. Oh, I love JVs. Oh, dude. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, all right, dude. All right. Well, you know, Kotiha Taco Shop down there is really good, too. So it, okay. It's hard to miss, honestly. You know, it is. And I, I think I just, you know, you lost a little respect for me right there, and I apologize. No, no, no. No respect loss. I mean, <laughs> hey, differing opinions are what makes this world go round. So, Joey, I... Uh, Man, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us and just sharing, you know, all you know, all the information you did with us. It's wonderful insight, you know. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it, Les. Yeah, and for those interested, the book is called "Stop Complaining," and you can find it on Amazon. Be sure to check it out. It's a it's an awesome read, Joey. Thanks, Les. I want to thank Joey Santani of the University of Pacific for joining me on the podcast today. Be sure to check out prepbaseballreport.com for all your news and information. And until next time, we'll see you at the yard.